We start with the city of Vancouver's financial crisis right now. Mayor Kennedy Stewart says the COVID-19 pandemic has decimated the city's finances. The city faces potential drastic service cuts. Vancouver residents face possible massive property tax increases unless the city gets help. Let's talk to him about it right now. Mayor Kennedy Stewart, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it a lot. This is an extraordinary case you've laid out here in the last few days. You say Vancouver taxpayers could be hit with a 24% property tax hike. That's actually not what I said. What I said was the hit would be the equivalent of a 24% tax hike. I didn't say there would be a 24% tax hike. Uh, Yeah, I know. I'm just wondering why you would put something like that out there to start with. And the city, you said the city might have to lay off police officers and firefighters unless you get help. Is this reality or is this like just a bargaining tactic with the province to get the, yeah, the money? It's all reality, Mike. I mean, you know, just like Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix have been honest with the public, this is what I'm doing, is that we're being very open about our financial situation at the city, uh, having a, a long discussion about it yesterday. And then I commissioned a study last week to talk about property tax defaults right. and showing that showed up to 25% of our residents may pay uh, a small amount or none of their property taxes, which would absolutely devastate our books. Uh, In total, our worst case scenario would be about a half a billion dollar operating uh, revenue loss, which would be financially devastating. And I think it's my job as mayor to lay that out. Uh, The headlines kind of sensationalize this, but, uh, you know, I'm just going to have to keep telling the public the truth. Well, the, sensa- and, the sensational headlines reflect what you said, but you're really not going to lay off first responders during an emergency, right? I mean, we know you're not going to lay off firefighters and police officers during this crisis, so I'm just wondering why you would even suggest that. Look, if we have a half a billion dollar hit with no help from the federal and provincial governments, and it doesn't look like anything's coming, all options are going to be on the table here. It's not like a choice for us is that we cannot run deficits, uh, right by law. And yeah. um, I, the last thing, and of course, what I've said in many interviews is why we need help is because we absolutely cannot lay off first responders in the middle of, of this pandemic. I wonder why, why would you put that on the table? The, the president of the Canadian Police Association said this week that cops and firefighters are stressed out enough without being threatened with layoffs, and you're just making their anxiety worse. What do you say? Yeah, to I, again, being honest is never a popular thing to do, uh, but that's what I have to do for the public here, is that to tell them and the province and the federal government how we're doing in cities. I just got off a call with uh, mayors all around the world. They're all facing the same problem. Uh, and what we're seeing is inaction from the federal and provincial governments in recognizing this. And so, you know, we've already laid off 1,500 staff at the city. Uh, there's more news coming this week. You saw what happened with TransLink. Uh, right. TransLink, 85% revenue loss, and yet no help at all. So, um, you know, at this point, I don't even think we're having proper conversations about this. So if you want an economic well, recovery here in Canada... You have to have functioning municipalities because we approve all projects. So, um, you know, it's, it doesn't make me a popular person, but I think I have to tell people the truth. When, when, I, when I talk to my sources in the B.C. government, they tell me they're not going to give you $200 million at this time, and I know you've heard the same thing. And one thing I've heard from the province is that before you ask for a bailout, that and you seem to be the only mayor in the province who's making a request like this right now, you better demonstrate that you've tightened your own belt first. You better show that you've done a deep dive into your yeah, own we, finances we, first. We've laid off find- 10% of our workforce already. 
We've laid off 10% have, of our workforce. Mayor Stewart, you have, you have not looked at every penny of savings. I mean, just two weeks ago, your council approved $6 million in grants to arts organizations. $6 million to Mike, the, Van- the Vancouver Jazz, versus, the Vancouver Jazz Society. versus half a billion. I mean, come on, let's get our numbers straight here. Well, com- $6 well, billion com- dollars to keep, uh, to keep, you know, that were already pre-approved grants versus half a billion dollars of the potential loss. I think you've got to make your, you know, you've got to put this in scale. Well, I'm, I'm just saying it's a question of priorities because two weeks ago, we already had the pandemic raging through the city. You had stores shutting down and being boarded up downtown. You mm-hmm. got thousands of people being laid off. And yet you're approving grants two weeks ago to the Vancouver Orchid Society and the Vancouver Tap Dance Society. Where is the priority Six million, there? Like Six million dollars. I'm talking a half a billion. And, and that's why I think we're getting this controversy is because it's a, it's a place we've never been before. It's a place you're seeing, now you're seeing layoffs in cities right across uh, the province. And you're going to continue to see this unless we have serious discussions. So if the province isn't going to give us a, uh, any kind of op- uh, liquid operating cash, what they need to do is they need to uh, pick up their property deferment, uh, pro- property tax deferment program yeah. and help homeowners uh, by allowing them to defer their property taxes uh, until later uh, in the year. I, and I that is a program that's already offered to seniors. Right. If they want to help, they're going to have to extend that program. I think where the province is coming from, though, is they want to know that you have tried to find every penny of savings that you can before they before you come to them with a bailout. So, for example, I know that it's nice of you to stick up sa- for the province, but they also have to recognize what's going on in their municipalities. I'm not I'm not and- sticking I'm not sticking up for them. I'm just telling you the reality of where they're coming from on this. Like, for example, the the city has got a contingency fund of money that is set aside for emergencies and unforeseen expenses. It's called the Revenue Stabilization Reserve. And sure this was it is. In, yep. in your own report last week. Why not use that money? It you will got, be you got $130 million in there. Yeah, Mike, if, if, like I said, the best, there's nobody else that has information like I have because I, uh, I commissioned this very comprehensive study, a good study. It shows that if we have these property tax defaults, we're way beyond that. We're way beyond our, our reserves and our contingency, and there's a lot of numbers that float around out there. A lot of our, uh, the money that people are saying is so-called liquid is uh, locked up in property, for example. The city owns a bunch of property, but on that property sits co-ops and nonprofit housing and temporary modular housing. It's not something that you can just liquidate. So our, our ability to find giant amounts of cash to keep our operating going is not is not as, uh, you know, uh, available as, you know, you're seeing uh, the media report. So, the, the again, reven- we've, we've, we've laid off 1,500 workers already. Yeah. Mayor Stewart, the, the Revenue Stabilization Reserve is a liquid reserve of money. You got $130 million in there. You're asking for the province for $200 million. You got $130 million sitting there right now. And according to the, yeah, the, so your own staff, hang on, hang on. According to, oh. according, yeah, according to your own staff report, they said mon- this money is used for snow removal and other unplanned emergencies. There's no snowstorms coming. We're in an emergency right now. This is an emergency. You should oh, use Mike, that money. If there's a snowstorm in November, we have to have some reserves. If there's an earthquake, if there's a major catastrophe, that uh, you know, we, we can't strip it all the way down to zero. But if we don't get provincial help, that's what we'll have to do. And we'll have to do even uh, more dramatic uh, cuts. So, so again, uh, my job is to stick up for the city. That's what I'm doing. Uh, it may make the federal and provincial governments uncomfortable. You know, I did it by uh, pushing for an early state of emergency, which we did here. Uh, and that, that proved to be the right thing to do. 
This is what I'm doing well, here now is I'm ringing the bell and saying, look, your municipalities are in trouble. Um, well, okay, they're laying off staff all over the place. But you're saying that that could make the provincial government uncomfortable. I'm saying to you that this makes B.C. taxpayers uncomfortable because you're effectively asking all the taxpayers in the province to bail out your city in a city where spending has gone up 32% in five years. It's got so nothing the, the to do with that. No, the spending that you guys have approved has galloped way ahead of the inflation rate. You guys have lived way above your means, and now you're asking everybody else to be you know, out. You know where most of that money has gone. Most of that money goes into labor, and it does because we've reinvested in police and fire. That's, that's really where the increases have come over the last 18 months. So, I mean, I think it's important, and this is a great uh, period of time for people to actually learn about their municipalities and how the finances work and what we actually invest in, rather than just, you know, the rhetorical statements you uh, many people put out there is that there's all kinds of fat to trim in cities. There isn't. It's, you know, our not... main revenue source is property tax, and I'm what the right. study I released last week said, that's under threat in a serious way. It's, so, not a, it's not a rhetorical statement, though, Mayor Stewart, to take a look at how much you guys are spending on things like public art and your communication staff, and then compare that. But you're talking that. about peanuts and, compared and then, to, yeah, but to you compare it's a $1.6 billion operating budget. Right. And that's why when you get into deep cuts, you do talk about frontline services like police and fire. It's happened in the past. Uh, and if we get this kind of hit, which is unprecedented, you know, you see the stock markets, you see what's happening to our economy, you see the layoffs, you see the number of people applying for unemployment, it's going to hit cities too. It is hitting cities. And because we can't run deficits, we're in a much different situation than federal and provincial governments. It's a question. So, of pri- it's a question of spending priorities by the city, and I think that's so what, what a lot, cut, of, a lot of ta- how, how a lot would of you how would you come up with a half a billion dollars in savings from the city? Well, the first thing you could do is dip into that stabilization fund that you got sitting right there. That for okay, some that's reason gone, you don't and want you still to have three hundred million dollars to come up with. Well, there's there's other pots of money you could. How come you're the only mayor asking for a bailout? I mean, we just well, why we just, was I the first heard, mayor to come out and say we needed a state of emergency? We just heard the Surrey mayor on the newscast saying that he doesn't want a bailout. You say the Poco mayor there has cut back, is, has canceled this year's property tax increase you know how to much 0%. Is, is the Poco property tax cut cost that city $300,000. If we did the same tax cut, it would cost us $60 million. Cities are different. Vancouver is different than other municipalities. And, and we all know this. You know, I don't see a downtown east side in Poco, right? I don't see parades, pride parades, all these kind of things, fireworks, all the main things that you have in a core city, I don't see this in surrounding municipalities. But the thing I do see here is the engine of our provincial economy. And I'm telling you, you know, if transit's in trouble, if we can't get our building permits approved and our licenses approved, those types of things, we're not going to have much of an economic recovery. So this is why it's important for me to tell people the truth as to, you know, what's happening with city finances. Okay, you've laid it on the line. What has the province told you? I haven't heard anything. Didn't they tell you that you weren't going to get the $200 million? Not directly to me. Okay, all right. Indirectly? Indirectly, yeah. Yeah. Mayor Stewart, I appreciate you coming on here today. Thanks a lot. No problem. Thanks for covering this. Okay, thank you. That is Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart there making the case for a provincial bailout seeking $200 million from the provincial government. I don't think he's going to get it. I think this provincial government will be helping municipalities 
but helping out one individual city, the biggest one in the province with a $200 million bailout right now, I don't think is on at the moment. Here's Look, if we have a half a billion dollar hit with no help from the federal and provincial governments, and it doesn't look like anything's coming, all options are going to be on the table here. It's not like a choice for us is that we cannot run deficits uh, right by law. And um, the last thing, and of course, what I've said in many interviews is why we need help is because we absolutely cannot lay off first responders in the middle of, of this pandemic. Okay, as Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart in the interview I did just in the first half hour of the show there, making the case for a bailout here from the provincial government. He's seeking $200 million. He says the pan- the COVID-19 pandemic has decimated the city of Vancouver's budget. And you heard him say there that he would absolutely not lay off first responders here in order to save money. Why did he put that on the table then? This is one of the things I tried to challenge him on. Cops and firefighters are stressed out enough without this guy threatening to lay them off. And we know it's all fantasy land stuff anyway. He's not going to lay off cops and firefighters when there's an emergency going on. So why would you even put that on the table? Let's talk about it now with Richard Zussman, the Global BC legislative reporter. Very pleased you can come on. Hey, Richard. Thanks, Vinny. Thanks for doing this. The, there's a lot of pressure, I think, on the, on the provincial government here to respond to the mayor. He says he has not received a formal response to his request for $200 million. He said he's heard indirectly that he's not going to get the money. What are you hearing? He is going to get some money eventually, Smitty, because... It doesn't make any sense from the province's point of view for a mayor to shout loudly at a press conference and say, I need X amount of money. And then another mayor says, I don't need any money. And a third mayor says, I need this much money. Ultimately, every single municipality is being hit hard by this. Some are in better financial situations than others. Some have uh, higher burdens on them than others. And I know the province is working on a plan to help support municipalities. That likely will mean changing the law around running deficits. If it doesn't, the province will have to ensure financial support to get cities to a point where they can uh, strike some sort of financial balance. There also likely will be some a lump sum payment for municipalities based on necessity. Like there's a lot of factors at play here, Smitty. And I think it's premature for Kennedy Stewart to start fear mongering in many regards about how deep the cuts can be if no help is coming, because the reality is help will be coming. The province has to help municipalities in this. Municipalities have such few tools to raise revenues. The province needs to provide support. Sure. Municipalities can be more efficient in their cuts. They can think creatively about other ways to raise revenues, but there will be support coming from the province. It could be as early as uh, early next week. Okay, it's interesting to look at Mayor Kennedy Stewart's tactics here, and I wonder if this is kind of a a squeaky wheel play, that if he feels he gets out in front of this, he's the first mayor to put his hand up, ask for the money, paint a very dire uh, worst-case scenario if he doesn't get the money. And maybe that's going to irritate the province, and I think it is. I, I detect there's irritation from the provincial government that he, that he's pulling this kind of stuff, but maybe he thinks, hey, squeaky wheel's going to get the grease here. And look around John Horgan's cabinet table and all the ministers that are from Vancouver. Adrian yeah. Dix leading the charge on the crisis. Shane Simpson, George Chow, David Eby, George right. Heyman. Like, these are prominent members of cabinet that live 
uh, and represent communities in Vancouver. And so they will be hearing from constituents as well around, you know, we need these supports in our communities. We can't see drastic cuts. We can't see cuts to our essential services. You know, there are other solutions, but to get the sort of revenues that Kennedy Stewart is talking about will require long-term solutions. And some of them may be hugely unpopular. You know, one of them that keeps coming back to the surface is this idea of mobility pricing. Kennedy Stewart talked about the burden that Vancouver faces by being the hub of the city. Right, People from all over Metro Vancouver work and play in Vancouver. They use the services, they use the roads, they commute in, and they don't pay for those services. And mobility pricing, by charging vehicles that are coming in from other jurisdictions, you can uh, produce a solution there. You know, Smitty, anytime a politician mentions mobility pricing, your phone lines will light up like crazy, especially from Langley and Surrey and say, no freaking way. You can't do that to us. So it would be highly politically unpopular, but could generate significant revenues, and that revenue could be transferred back to Vancouver for carrying that burden. The other one is density. Right, Vancouver has long been resistant. They can crank up density along the Broadway corridor, fundamentally change neighborhoods and use those revenues. Again, they're long-term solutions, but this COVID-19 is going to be a long-term economic problem. And and these sort of solutions can generate revenues, but they're not particularly politically popular. Okay, speaking of Richard Zussman, he's the Global BC Legislative Reporter. Richard, at the same time that the city of Vancouver is talking about its financial crisis, now here we go with TransLink, the Metro Vancouver Transit Authority, saying they're broke too. They're losing two and a half million bucks a day. They're just bleeding money over there. I had the president of TransLink on yesterday saying they need a bailout. Uh, man, there's so many uh, pressure points here for this BC government. What What is your uh, analysis of the TransLink situation, and is the BC government going to bail them out? Yeah. Yes, they will bail them out as well. You know, this situation, Smitty, is is everybody down to, you know, individuals trying to balance their checkbook to the largest corporations are in financial misery because of COVID-19. I think that is a certainty. Some are in better financial positions to weather it than others. But TransLink is an essential service and continues to provide service uh, for those in Metro Vancouver every single day. So there has to be some sort of financial support from the province in order to ensure they can keep providing that essential service. How much is it going to be and how quickly is a question and what areas that's the other big factor here and we've heard this debate around TransLink a long time you know when they start looking at service reductions what communities do they target are they the ones with less traffic and does that mean that they continue to feel less isolated i'm talking about maple ridge about langley like do they start seeing cuts in their service well the the cuts in the city in the core of surrey in the core of vancouver they continue to keep their services that's a tough political decision as well in terms of what communities get left out when when cuts happen if if that's uh what has to happen to save money we're going to need that transit system up and running when we eventually get beyond this nightmare and we're into a recovery phase and we're trying to get the economy back up and running. And I think the TransLink president, that was maybe the strongest card he played there, is that you've got to keep this this corporation solvent in order to, in anticipation of a recovery. But I think, once again, it's another one where 
I think a lot of taxpayers might look at it and say, are you leading by example? Show me where you're tightening your own belt. They haven't had a single layoff over there. I mean, TransLink, the, the ridership on the system has, has been decimated. Uh, a lot of the service levels have been cut back, and yet nobody's been laid off. And I think that's a symbolic step, Smitty. Like, it won't save these organizations by seeing layoffs or seeing executive compensation cuts. But it is symbolic. In a time where people are struggling, it would be a symbolic gesture for the mayor to say, I'm taking a 25% pay cut. Any mayor. For the head of TransLink to say, I'm taking a 25% pay cut. Uh, you know, uh, organization saying, I'm not taking my bonuses. That executive compensation is going to be reduced by 20%. Trying to find places that send symbolic messages that we're doing what we can to try the best to avoid layoffs because layoffs would be a worst case scenario, Smitty, because again, once we get back to normal services, they're going to need those employees and they would like to try to keep those people working so they can provide for their families. But I think it would be a highly symbolic gesture if you start seeing those that are paid at the highest level in many of these big organizations to take cuts. Again, that's not going to solve the financial problem, but it does send a, a very strong message to the public. Richard, just lastly, and then we'll open some phone lines and take some more phone calls here, but where are we at in the latest with the pandemic here in BC? We continue to hear encouraging numbers almost on a daily basis from the provincial government. What, what is the key message here that uh, of how long this is going to drag on? Yeah, so that's the, the answer is we don't know, Smitty, and I think uh, we're going to start hearing that question more and more, and there's going to be more and more frustration around not having an answer. I see it in my email inbox. When is this going to end? How long are we going to allow the economy to suffer because of this? Justin Trudeau today said weeks, if not months. And so we're looking like this is going to drag through May, potentially into June. What about that second wave? There are so many yeah. factors at play here, but the case numbers keep going down, Smitty, which is good news, but there doesn't seem to be an end of the, a light at the end of the tunnel at this point. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about the financial crisis in Metro Vancouver caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. You heard my interview first off the show today with Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart as he continues to make the case for a provincial or federal bailout of the city. He says the city's budget has been decimated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Next up, TransLink. The Metro Vancouver Transit Authority saying they are in dire financial straits because of the pandemic as well. TransLink saying they're losing $75 million a month. That's $2.5 million a day. Yesterday on the show, I spoke to Kevin Desmond. He's the CEO of TransLink. Have a listen. We've got a six to $700 million problem. So inevitably, the only way we could possibly recover portions of that um, of that revenue loss is is to reduce the spending on what we do in service and the budget cuts we'll be bringing forward to our policymakers will be across the board they will be in services and in administrative operations okay kevin desmond the head of translink on the show yesterday warning of severe service cuts to the transit system in metro vancouver Unless they get help. Let's check in now with Brett, uh, Brent Totterin. He's the former chief city planner for the city of Vancouver. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Brent. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. I know you follow this type of stuff super closely, especially how transit works in, in big cities. What do you think about the situation that TransLink finds itself in right now? Well, it's, it's devastating to watch it for anyone who cares about the way our region functions. Because whether you're a transit uh, taker uh, or whether you're a driver, 
the implications of transit failing um, during this pandemic and, and, and especially after this pandemic, um, our region doesn't function properly without it. And, and so the fact that uh, Kevin, who has one of the toughest jobs in the region at the best of times, and this is certainly not the best of times, is, is talking in, with as dire language as he is and talking about service cuts during the recovery, not just yeah. during the pandemic. Uh, it's, it's very concerning and the implications to our region are staggering. Okay, how did we get into this mess? I mean, obviously, transit ridership is down dramatically as people self-isolate and quarantine during this pandemic. But there's there's also other cost pressures. Like, basically, transit is basically free in the city right now, right? Like, you're going to, if you get on a bus, you're going on the back door. You're not paying your fare. Right, and they're still taking in revenue from SkyTrain, but not from buses. But yeah, it's yeah. kind of what you have to do during a pandemic. Yeah, I, I think they're taking emergency measures to make sure that it remains an essential service. From yeah. and, and I'm not second-guessing any of their decisions during the pandemic. My concern is uh, what happens to transit moving forward past the pandemic and during the recovery time. Right. Because if we abandon or if we if if we abandon transit uh, if because we're afraid uh, or if transit fails and we get to an american level of of service and i say that as a pejorative because a lot of american cities have very bad uh transit service and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy about why people don't want to take transit uh, i've seen it over and over again in other contexts it makes us realize how good we have it, uh, have had it in transit with record increases in ridership in recent years. So we stand to lose a lot of ground and maybe get to levels of transit failure that aren't just implications for our mobility, for climate change, for public health, for the economic success of our region. But it really needs to be said, our region doesn't function without uh, all of those people that transit moves not trying to drive because if they do try to drive nobody moves yeah. yeah one of the big revenue sources for translink of course is the fare box and people paying their fares to, to use the system and that is obviously down dramatically another yeah. one is the translink gas tax which is collected on gas sales in metro vancouver that's another big revenue chunk for translink and that's down too because there's so many right. few, there are fewer people driving so they're paying they're buying less gas and they're paying less gas tax so that's down 60 percent 60 percent as well so i can see how translink gets into this jam and how they're in a crisis but do you think that they're making a compelling case for a bailout without showing some sort of leadership by example on whether it's an executive pay cut layoffs at least an, administ- an administrative layoffs i mean there hasn't been a single layoff over there i mean Mike, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a city planner i'm not going to yeah. talk about organizational questions that they have or funding questions that they have it's just it's not my expertise well no i'm, I'm talking i'm to- talking about the reality of what of what translink is asking for here i mean they're asking for a bailout but i can tell you that when i speak to people in the provincial government it's the same thing with kennedy stewart before you come to me with your hat cap in hand asking for a bailout, show me that you've found all the efficiencies in your own organization first. And when well, it I'm comes sure, to the city I'm of sure Vancouver, lots of your, your guests have strong opinions on that kind of thing. I've got my opinions, but I'm not here to give you my opinions. I'm, give, I'm here to give you my expertise. And if transit fails during the yeah. pandemic, it leads to significant problems of basic essential services, people being able to get to work at the hospital, get to work at the grocery store, right. uh, because many people don't have other options. 
But that's one part of the challenge. And, and do they need help? Yes, they need help. And yeah. do they possibly need to make changes within their organizations? Absolutely. But we need to be having the conversation about what this means moving forward during the recovery and after this pandemic. Because if this does permanent damage to transit, in, in transit's reputation, our perception of its safety, if the car companies mm-hmm. succeed in marketing to us that cars are safe, even though the, the statistics don't suggest that, the implications in the medium term and long term to our region are significant. And I think we need to be having that conversation at the same time. Okay. I, I think you're putting a finger on something important, and that is what is this system going to look like when this nightmare is over? And because eventually we're going to get through this, uh, we will begin a recovery. There are people like Donald Trump who want kind of a big bang recovery and think that things, things will ramp up very quickly and we'll go back to normal. I'm not so sure the recovery is going to be that rapid, and you're going to need a functioning transit system here as we get back to normal. So, Brent, have a listen to this. Here, Here is more of Kevin Desmond from yesterday, the TransLink CEO, uh, talking about what the system could look like when the pandemic is over. Uh, we will have a very diminished system, even as people are beginning to reemerge, wanting to use public transportation to get to jobs, to get to school, et cetera. So we're we're really trying to think of both this essential service during the emergency period and, very importantly, how we will, we will support the uh, recovery. Hopefully, that will begin to happen during the summer period. Okay, a very diminished system, which is a, a depressing thought. What do you think? Well, I've been involved with trying to build a workable public transit system in places where transit doesn't get enough funding, has to make these Faustian choices between ridership and coverage and cutting coverage from places that just don't have enough riders and and can't generate enough fares. You end up cutting services, which leads to less people using transit, which leads to less revenue, which leads to more cutting of services. It creates this downward spiral that is quite common, as I say, in the United States. And the reason why so many U.S. markets have bad public transit systems, it Going down that path scares me a lot uh, because it's it's a it once that downward spiral starts, it's really hard to pull yourself out of that flat spin. So mm-hmm. we need to be having proactive discussions right now, and I know Kevin and his crew are having those kinds of discussions. But to your listeners, I think there's two critical points. First of all, we as the public can't give up on transit because we're afraid because the consequences of that are staggering. Not the least of which is that. It's a bedrock of our solutions for climate change. And if climate change gets accelerated because of more car driving, ironically, one of the consequences of climate change is more and worse pandemics. So we can double down on going into a really dark path if we're not careful. And from a funding perspective, we need to rethink a lot of our funding sources for transit because they might not be there during the recovery. And again, if we have to cut services to make up for it, that creates a downward spiral towards less transit ridership and more car use. And that's a failure for everyone, including car drivers in this region. Brent Totter and former chief planner for the city of Vancouver, 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll free on yourself. Brent, just before we go to a few phone calls, what do you think should be done here? I mean, I, I think obviously the system has got to be, needs help. And I think the provincial government will step forward with some sort of bailout. But how do they do it? I don't, I don't know the, uh, the, the specific mechanisms. And I think there will have to be some reallocation of service uh, and probably some cuts because you have to prioritize the places with the highest ridership. That's a, 
again, that's a, 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 an approach or a mindset that many cities have had to do when there's limited funds. And the tendency is to prioritize ridership corridors rather than extensive coverage um, that picks up fewer people, frankly. The problem is that's going to leave some people essentially stranded. And in normal times, what happens is you try to pick up the slack in those areas through even things like deals with ride sharing. So uh, I'm sure that conversation is happening at TransLink now because you got to cut the main service, but you have to pick up the slack somehow through some other means. So I think that conversation is probably happening. It's it's it is an essential service. Uh, it's yeah, something yeah. that has to keep running. But what form it keeps running in is the strategic question that gets asked right now. But we have to maintain the kind of sanctity of the system, the, the reputation of the system, the popularity of the system to be crass, because at the end of the day, we have to all go back to transit or else we're in even bigger trouble. Okay, you mentioned about the potential for people to start using their cars more instead of getting on transit, especially if they feel like being in a car is safer than being on, a, let's say, a bus right. in terms of maintaining your health and catching the virus. Isn't it, wouldn't it be safer to be in a car? Well, we've already seen, for example, in Wuhan, uh, spikes of car purchases and car ownership. And yeah. the, the irony of that is China had to move away from so much car ownership because nobody was moving and they were choking uh, on their own air. So the idea that you can go back to car as, and maybe even more cars as a result of this, I think uh, more logical minds will prevail because that can't work. Now, the interesting nuance is how much of us are going to be working from home after this? Will a a new culture, a new skill set based on this experience of a lot more teleworking, will that lead to fewer cars on the road, less demand and pressures on transit? So we have the opportunity to uh, physically distance on buses and trains. I think that's really important. Uh, And there's debates going on right now about how much teleworking is going to stick as a result of this. I think it's going to have to be part of the solution. But let's be clear, if, if, we're, if we're trying to drive more, the implications of that, even from a safety perspective, car crashes are the number one cause of death of kids in the world before this pandemic and probably after this pandemic. And, and preventable diseases from smog. Uh, it's remarkable the images of how cities' airs have cleaned up while people yeah. aren't driving. There are significant health and safety implications to too much driving. So we can't just let the tail wag the dog in terms of letting this pandemic scare us away from the, the, the solutions that we need for better cities and a better future. Okay, star 9898 is the number toll-free on your cell. Let's go to some phone calls here. Hi, Ben on the open line. Yeah, good morning. Hi, go ahead. Yeah, well, just the, the thought that comes to mind with me is I really do believe that while this pandemic is on, we really need to shelf uh, our transit system. It's, if you look at it, it's a direct conduit to this, uh, this virus. Like, it's, you know, the first thing that happens, like our, our prime minister will not shut our airport, so we still have international flights coming in. The first thing they do is they get on our SkyTrain. It's a direct conduit, a direct link down to the downtown core. And this follows through on all of our buses. I think it's absolutely okay. ludicrous to keep it coming, well, to keep our transit I running. There's people, there's healthcare workers getting to the hospital on the bus. About that. No, there's not. Like when no, not. A, a few news hours ago, the, the, what was reported is that people were parking in 
in hospital parking lots and our health care workers could not come. Like, there's a perceivance that everybody who rides the, no. the bus is, a, no, is an no. essential service. And no, that's, no, that's no, 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 no. Listen, listen to me. Listen to me. The TransLink did a, a poll on this and a survey, and I got no reason to doubt this. And the CEO told me this yesterday that about 20% of the ridership on the system right now are healthcare workers uh, going to work to keep us safe. And and they've also done physically distancing on on the bus. But Brent, you know, talk to me about this. I mean, right now when you get on a city bus in in Vancouver, they've they've blocked off a bunch of the seats so people are not sitting next to each other so people can physically distance. Your thoughts? Frankly, I think transit has done a better job of addressing physical distancing uh, in the context of the risk associated with it than grocery stores did initially. And if we're saying that transit is too dangerous to stay open, the argument that grocery stores are even more dangerous as, pl- as conduits for viral spread uh, is obvious. We, we, what we have to do is make sure that the places where crowds can gather are being properly managed. That's grocery yeah. stores. That's uh, transit buses and trains. And I think in both cases, that's being done. The problem is not that transit is, is increasing viral spread. The problem is that if transit fails, it actually puts us more at risk because we can't get to the grocery store safely. Our, sta- our, our, our healthcare workers can't get to work safely. Well, squeeze in one more. Tim, you got to go fast. You're almost out of time. Yeah, very quickly. I just yeah. want to agree with your uh, thing and whether uh, your uh, guess and whether or not this plays in the Kennedy Stewart's argument about asking for money if Transunk is going to, and Transunk affects more than just the city of Vancouver, and whether this yeah. is going to have a, a found impact on the issue of private versus public. Thank oh, okay. you. Okay. Thank you, Tim, for the call. Well, yeah, I think the uh, maybe there is a more compelling argument for TransLink here for, for help. Uh, Brent, we're out of time. Thanks a lot for coming on today with your thoughts and analysis. My pleasure. Always interesting. <laughs> you bet. I appreciate it. That is Brent Totter, and he's the former chief planner for the city of Vancouver. Now, let's talk about our federal leaders here and whether they are leading by example. Now, you may have heard about Justin Trudeau and his family over the Easter long weekend. Uh, went to the official family cottage there in Harrington Lake in Quebec. You may have heard about federal conservative leader Andrew Scheer packing his wife and kids onto a crowded government jet uh, against the social distancing uh, er, uh, uh, rules and that we've been hearing about for, for weeks. Let's check in now with McLean Kay. He's a writer for the orca.ca website, and he wrote a great column on this that I recommend. McLean, thanks for coming in. Thanks very much for having me on. Okay, so let's talk about Trudeau first of all. Now, here's a listen to this. This is Justin Trudeau before the Easter long weekend telling everybody to stay home. Here he is. But right now, this weekend is going to be very different. You'll have to stay home. You'll have to Skype that big family dinner. And the Easter egg hunt, well, it'll have to happen around the house instead of around the neighborhood. Okay, so he wanted you to do the Easter weekend by Skype, but that's not how he did his own Easter weekend, right? So tell me what he did. Well, yeah, the Prime Minister has a summer residence uh, paid for by taxpayers, and it's just outside uh, Ottawa, in Harrington Lake, about 35 kilometers north of downtown Ottawa. And I gather his wife and kids were already there. Um, and after telling us all to stay home, uh, the Prime Minister uh, drove up the 35 kilometers to Harrington Lake and stayed there. And we know that because his wife posted on, uh, I gather, on Instagram. Yeah. And, um, I mean, we talked about this off-air. It's He didn't endanger anyone. 
it wasn't reckless what he did. It wasn't a remote community. It's, there's no public access. There's no local grocery. It's more violating the spirit of staying home and not leading by example. Okay, and it's not like it's his own personal private cabin that he's had. It, this is an official residence for the prime minister maintained by Canadian taxpayers. That's right. Right? Okay. So, I mean, he's expected to go there, <laughs> right? Yeah. But, so, so he went there with his family. I mean, surrounded by security. It's not like like it's not like he was popping into the local local town to pick up groceries and stuff, right? Yeah, I mean there is no local town. The local yeah. town is Ottawa. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So you know, so but was he technically breaking the rules though? Well, I mean, it's it depends on how you want to define staying home. If if you want to define staying home as your second home, um, the the prime minister has two official residences. There's the one you all know about in Ottawa, and then there's the Harrington Lake one. Right. Uh, he has been working out of the one in Ottawa. That's the one you see him doing the briefing out of every day. He's right. not been working out of Harrington Lake. He did leave for the weekend to go join his family at um, the the cottage because his wife and kids were at the Harrington Lake cottage. So yeah. he went there for the Easter weekend. Yeah. As right. You can imagine the temptation. I mean, I could, I would want to be with my wife and kids over Easter long weekend too. Of course. Now, okay, so you say he didn't put anyone at risk, no. it, it would appear. But is there, in principle, is this kind of like, was this sending the right message to Canadians as he tells everybody else to stay home? I, I don't think it was. Yeah. I think that um, if they're asking people who live in, you know, 400 square foot apartments with no balconies, to stay home, not go yeah. outside, uh, you know, have do your Easter dinner by Skype. And in the city where he lives, Ottawa, they're, they're telling people not to talk to your neighbors over the fence. It, it is kind of grating to see him uh, and his family enjoying, you know, a private lakeside cottage uh, running around in the forbidden outdoors. Again, he didn't endanger anyone. Um, it's strictly speaking, no one was put at risk. It's more a question of not leading by example. Okay, let's have a listen to Trudeau here. Of course, he was questioned about this. People did point it out as being something hypocritical, and here he is defending it. After three weeks of my family living up at, uh, at Harrington uh, and me working here, I uh, went to join them for, for Easter. Uh, we continue to follow all the instructions from public health authorities. Okay, what was he supposed to do then? Like, was he, Should he have stayed in Ottawa and not had Easter with his kids? Well, I mean, I, I don't think we knew, or at least I didn't know before this weekend, that his wife and kids weren't with him at the uh. Uh, at the official residence. So, I mean, I, I can well understand a man wanting to be with his wife and kids. Um, that said, it does, it's because we learned through Instagram posts, it is difficult to expect, as I say, the, your, your downtown apartment dweller to not go outside, not go for jogs, not, you know, play golf. If the prime minister is going to, again, a not especially remote cottage. Okay, the enforcement against the social distancing measures seems to be applied at different levels across the country. Like you mentioned in Ottawa, where Trudeau has his official residence, that we saw stories emerge this week that people were told that if you have a driveway beer, like you know, some people are having like a driveway party with their with their neighbors. You put a you put a, a lawn chair out there crack a cold one maybe your neighbor is in the next driveway so you maintain the social distancing right but you have a, you, you have a little chat over a drink some people are doing that i've done it i'll admit it i've done that as we maintain the social distance though okay but in some parts of the country 
you can get a ticket for doing that, right? Including in Ottawa. Tell me what's going on with that. Well, I mean, they're, uh, they've been directed. Uh, this, Ottawa is the city where, you know, they've uh, broken up kids' lemonade stands. Uh, yeah. So there's something they do there. But I guess yesterday the directive uh, was uh, no more, specifically no more beers in your driveway. And also, you know, don't even talk to your neighbor over the fence, which is insane. Uh, because yeah. people, A, you're, we're supposed to be checking on our neighbors if they need help or, you know, maybe they can't get groceries or something like that. But also, people are just not going to do it. People are yeah. inevitably going to uh, ignore an order to not talk to their neighbors. Right. Especially if you're maintaining the social distancing exactly. like we've been told to to do. All right. So that's Trudeau. Let's talk about Andrew Scheer now, <laughs> the, the federal conservative leader, because he took some heat this week for his own personal behavior. Now, this one started when there was a, uh, a government jet, a challenger jet that's used for government and parliamentary officials to flight, fly people around the country. There were supposed to be three people on this flight. Andrew Scheer, uh, Elizabeth May, the federal Green Party leader, and Carla Qualtrough is a liberal cabinet minister from British Columbia. They're flying to Ottawa. They were asked, is it okay if Andrew Scheer and his wife and their five kids get on this jet to go to Ottawa? And that's what happened. So they all crammed on this nine-seat jet, which is like, it's, this thing's like a cigar tube, basically, and you're crammed in there. Uh, did Scheer do something wrong? Yeah. In your, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think this one is a little more black and white than the Trudeau situation in that, um, uh, I mean, what a terrible position to put Elizabeth May and Carla, Carla Qualtrough in, uh, to, to go to them and say, is it okay with you? You're allowed to say yes or no to this man's wife and kids. Um, that decision should not have been asked. Uh, they should not have been asked. And they agreed decision. to it. Yeah. They did. Yeah, because they were asked at first they were going to get on the jet and be able to social distance, and then they were said, "Well, is it okay if Sheer, Andrew Shear and his wife and five kids come come on board too?" That is a pretty unfair question to ask them. I think it is, and I mean, it's as I say, this one is a lot more black and white. And Andrew Shear, that should not have happened. I, I gather his family is in the process of relocating from Regina to Ottawa, and he didn't yeah. want them to fly a commercial. You can understand that. However, he's putting other people at risk. Okay, let's have a listen to Andrew Shear here. He's, of course, asked about it. He is on the hot seat over this, too. And here is, here is Andrew Shear defending the plane trip. We took uh, long disinfected wipes. We didn't interact with each other. We made sure that we weren't speaking moistly on each other. Kept to ourselves. The other two passengers got off the plane first. Our family left. So, um, you know, that was a decision we made with the best, uh, with, with, with the choices in front of us. Okay, no speaking moistly. You had the disinfectant wipes on hand. Still, you're yeah. breaking the rules, aren't you? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, as you say, this is not a Boeing 737. Yeah. This is a little nine-seat plane that, frankly, even with three passengers, you know, you can you struggle to think that that might have been pushing social distancing to the very limit. With its full uh, on a long flight from, I, I guess, Regina, um, my goodness, that's a lot of accidental coughing and breathing and sighing and, um, you know, maybe even accidental touching that uh, must have been driving everyone else crazy. What do you think of the pandemic politics in our country right now? Like, we've seen a lot of sort of cross-partisan cooperation here, but you're starting to see some sort of politics emerge now, sheer this week, attacking the Trudeau government for being too slow in its COVID response, for example. 
I mean, is at some point, I, mean, I think there's been a lot of groupthink going on here on this thing, but at some point, does the opposition start acting like an opposition and start attacking governments again? Well, I mean, this is a question yeah. that opposition parties are asking themselves across the world. Is it, yeah. Where is that balance of our job is to hold government to account? And, and quite frankly, they need to keep doing that Yeah. Um, because governments will make mistakes and not see things. Um, that said... I don't think people have any appetite for partisan shots right now. This is not the time to be undermining confidence in in uh, public health officials and things like that, as we've seen uh, other opposition parties do. So it's it's a real uh, it's a tightrope. Can to my guest McLean K from the Orca.ca. Let's go right to your phone calls. Hiya, Peter. Peter, there you are. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Go ahead. Uh, first of all, I'm not a churl guy at all. I'm not a liberal at all, so I'm not partisan. But leave the guy alone. He went to see his family. I think this is just getting ridiculous and crazy. I really do. I think people are overreacting to everything. I went on a motorcycle ride the other night, and I told somebody I did, and they asked, what the hell am I doing that for? I should be at home. I mean, you can only stay at home so much, and he went to see his family. Give the guy a break. People bitching at that are just ridiculous. Okay, it Peter, really is. Thank you for the call. We were anticipating a call like this, McLean, that people would say, lighten up, leave the guy alone. But, I mean, maybe that should that apply to everybody? Maybe they should stop writing tickets if you're having a beer in your driveway. Yeah. Too, I, right? I, I mean, I, I part of me agree, agrees with your caller is that I completely sympathize with a man who wants to spend Easter with his wife and kids. And as we said, he, he wasn't endangering anybody. It's more about uh, the long-term effects of not leading by example. And if people see the, the prime minister on what looks like a remote cabin getaway for the weekend, I think they'll be more inclined but is, to say, I can do the same in Galliano. Uh, well, I guess, but I mean, is I think I, I would cut Trudeau more slack than Sheer. Yeah, oh, I agree with that. Right? I mean, Sheer and his kids going on that jet, that, that jet is super small, okay? And it's like, it's only nine seats. Every seat was full. Yeah. I think the difference between the two cases is that Sheer actually broke physical distancing, yeah. whereas Trudeau it was more sort of the spirit of stay home and not leading by example, and it's not the same thing at all. Back to the phone lines. Hiya, Frank. Hi there, Mike. Did you have an, or that rep, the, the, when you talk about Shear and he's riding the plane, did you, did you read the whole CBC article or what is the article that you're referencing? Oh, it's been covered by everybody. What, what's your point? Uh, point being is that the flight originally was just supposed to have the MPs on it and then Andrew Shear was bringing his family with him. So yeah, that's right. He's just trying to, you know, he asked Trudeau and Trudeau was like, yep, I'll give it to you. Here, here's your family. Everybody can go on. Y'all can be together. Oh yeah, no, they all they all agreed yeah. to it. Thank, thank you, Frank. Oh, yeah. We did talk about that earlier. The the thing here's the way this went down. It was originally supposed to be Elizabeth May, the federal green leader, Carla Qualtro, a liberal MP from British Columbia, and I think Sheer. And then and then the, they were asked. Elizabeth May and Carla Qualtro were asked, "Is it okay if Andrew Sheer and his whole family comes on the jet too?" And they and they went they went along with it. And Shearer said he didn't want his wife and kids to fly in a commercial plane. I mean, I don't know why not. I mean, everybody else is flying. You know, if you got to go somewhere, you can fly in a commercial plane. But you said earlier you thought that was kind of unfair. Unfair, a position uh, yeah. to put Qualtro and May in. Yes, yeah, I do. to ask them if it's okay if his kids come on. And they, they agreed to it. Yeah, they did. And I I mean, could the government, the government doesn't have a fleet of planes at its command, but ideally, if if they needed to get Sheer and his family to Ottawa, they could have sent a, the plane back to go get them. But I mean, yes. what if, why can't the people who make the decisions and book the planes, why why are they making Elizabeth May and Carla Qualtro be the villains here? I uh, It's a terrible position to put them in. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9 Ninety-eight, ninety-eight, toll-free on your cell. Back to the phone lines. Hi, Mark. 
I'm my great show. I'm not a Trudeau fan either, but I think what he did was all right. He wants, wants to be with his family, and he wasn't going to any local businesses to possibly contaminate anybody. But Sheer definitely was uh, across the boundary there. He, he put uh, other people at risk with uh, loading that plane up, everybody in a seat. That's not social distancing like they're preaching, so that uh, that wasn't good. Okay, Mark, thanks for the call. Well, again, though, I guess it's if there's one standard for the prime minister of the country and another standard for everybody else, I guess, is the bottom line. Because right now, like earlier earlier this week on the show, we talked about small towns in British Columbia who are telling tourists to stay away, right? I mean, these are normally towns that are open, welcoming people with open arms. Now they want you to stay away, including some of the Gulf Islands, for example. So let's say you got a cottage in Galliano or, or one of the other islands, and you got a plan, okay, I'm going to take the ferry over there, load up my car, I'm going to bring all my stuff with me, all the food, so I'm not going to the local grocery store. I'm going to go right to the cottage. I'm not going to see anybody. I'm going to stay in my car in the ferry. That's not a lot. I mean, even then, people are saying don't do that. Right? So is, that, is, is this a case of this one rule for Trudeau and one rule for the rest of us? Is that your point? I, I think that's exactly it. It's it's more it's the symbolism of it. It's it's leading by example, and that yes, the facts are that Trudeau did not endanger anyone, and he was just going to be with his wife and kids. Your your callers are right. Yeah. However, I think that when people see that, they are more likely to say, "I can do the thing that I can do." which is maybe go to Galliano or Pender or Tofino or Penticton and also be safe, but uh, probably also terrify the residents there when they see them coming. But they in. don't want you there. No. Even if you're not going to go to the store, I think they don't want you there. I think they made it pretty clear. Je- Look back to the phone lines. Hiya, Jenny. Hi. Hi there. Go ahead. How's it going? Good. I, I totally agree with all the people that have just talked on the radio with Paul, uh, Peter, um, Trudeau was good. He was good. He is, as long as he was practicing safe social distancing and he got to spend his this weekend with the family, that's awesome on his part. A lot of us did not. We just spent it at home, like we were told, being safe. On the other part, maybe um, Trudeau needs to step up to the plate and think how many of us are losing our homes right now because we have no jobs because of all this. Because of the lumber industry collapse, because of all this other stuff that's going on in the world, does he really need two homes? Like, I'm sure the first one is really, really nice. Okay, Jenny. Um, this one's probably really nice, too. Jenny, thank you very much for the call. Well, I mean, that Harrington Lake Cottage has been there for prime ministers for a long time, right? Like, I don't know. Yeah, it's not his home. He, yeah, uh, it's owned I mean, by taxpayers, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And same with the, uh, the, and I've forgotten the name of it because 24 Sussex Drive is being renovated, but the, the residence in Ottawa is also yeah. his home currently, but it's not his. It's not Justin Trudeau's. Where can people find your stuff, real quick? Uh, I'm at, at McLean K on Twitter and uh, the Orca, uh, uh, theorca.ca online. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. That's McLean K from the Orca.ca. Let's talk about U.S. President Donald Trump now announcing that he will stop funding to the World Health Organization because it failed in its duty in its response to the coronavirus outbreak. Trump accusing the United Nations Agency of mismanaging and covering up the spread of the virus after it emerged in China. He said the World Health Organization has to be held responsible. The United States is the largest funder to the World Health Organization. It gave more than $400 million to the organization last year. Let's have a listen to the, the, the president here. Here's Trump announcing cutting his cuts to funding to the World Health Organization. 
Today, I'm instructing my administration to halt funding of the World Health Organization while a review is conducted to assess the World Health Organization's role in severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of the coronavirus. Everybody knows what's going on there. All right. Let's get some analysis on this one now with my guest, Professor Alan Lickman. He is an American political historian. Uh, his, I highly recommend his books, The Keys to the White House, The Case for Impeachment. Professor Lickman, it's great to have you on. Thanks for doing this. My great pleasure. I appreciate it a lot. What do you think about Trump cutting funding to the World Health Organization? You know, it's of a piece with what Trump has been doing, not just as president, but for 50 years. You know, the Republican Party once used to be the party of personal responsibility. Under Trump, that has been completely shattered. Trump, in 50 years as businessman and politician, has never taken responsibility for anything. In fact, we have the incredible paradox here in America of Trump saying, I have total authority, but I take no responsibility for anything. This is another effort by Trump, and he's a master at it. He's the best I've ever seen, and I've been looking at this for 50 years, best I've ever seen at deflecting and dodging. Trump had ample warning about the dangers of the new corona virus. He had it as early as January, certainly by the beginning of February. And what did he do? Nothing. He held eight political rallies with people standing shoulder to shoulder. He went golfing six times. He lied to the American people that anyone who wants a test can get a test. That's not even true now. So this is just another blatant attempt to politicize this crisis, which is shameful. At the same time, what is he doing? He's putting his damn name on everyone's stimulus check. Never done that before. The IRS is supposed to be totally nonpartisan. The checks don't come from him. They came from a bipartisan piece of legislation passed essentially unanimously in both houses of Congress. And he doesn't care that putting his name on it might actually delay the arrival of the stimulus check. I've never seen anything like this in all my years of following politics. I'll agree with you that this is kind of classic Trump, and it's certainly a part of his modus operandi for sure is you you never take you never take the blame yourself you always gotta you always gotta find somebody else to blame i mean trump himself has said that's one of the one of the the mottos of of his success so you know on the coronavirus it's you know blame the gut blame the state governors blame the media blame barack obama uh blame the world health organization for sure but let me ask you this don't you think the world health organization deserves to take some criticism here for the for the way this has been handled. I mean, even if you go back to when the virus was was first detected, and when China way back in January was claiming that there was no evidence of human to human transmission of, of the virus, uh, the World Health Organization was basically parroting the same thing back in China that there was still no evidence that, that this can thing can be spread. So it would, that they seem to be very unduly influenced by China. Yeah, that's probably true. There's you know certainly. Uh plenty of uh, finger-pointing that can be done, but that hardly justifies in the middle of this crisis. And our own allies, forget about China, our own allies have come out and said this. 
that hardly justifies something as drastic in the middle of this pandemic as cutting off funding for the World Health Organization. Let's not forget, yeah, the World Health Organization, I agree, was bamboozled by China. But what did Trump do? They had health experts in China monitoring this kind of thing. He was warned about unsafe conditions in some Chinese labs two years earlier. What did the Trump administration do? Ignored the warnings and pulled their officials out of China. So, yes, the World Health Organization certainly should get some opprobrium, but they are not in any way, shape or form responsible for Trump playing golf and holding rallies for over a month when he was warned about the dire effects of this pandemic. Speaking to Professor Alan Lickman about Trump cutting funding to the World Health Organization, uh, at the end of the day, if Trump does pull this funding of hundreds of millions of dollars to the World Health Organization, what what is the impact of that for the United States? I mean, obviously it cuts funding to this organization, but does the United States also risk uh, losing out on, on some of the sort of more valuable information and intelligence they could gather through that organization? Absolutely. We risk three things. One, as you point out, uh, the World Health Organization, you know, it needs reforming, but it certainly has been and can be a source of important information. Two, it further undermines the international efforts to deal with this crisis. This is not an American crisis, although astoundingly, the richest country in the world, the most scientifically advanced country in the world, has the world's worst outbreak. That's just astonishing. So that's the second problem. It undermines our relationships with our allies and the international effort to really deal with this. And then thirdly, it gives Trump an excuse for, you know, his continuing mishandling. It's not just that he did it for five weeks. He continues to mishandle this. There is no coordination from the top. You hear state officials, you hear doctors screaming for the federal government to take charge to coordinate. States shouldn't be competing with one another and raising the prices for ventilators or personal protective equipment. There should be a national market for this. There should be a national strategy. So again, it's just a distraction, not just for, you know, what is past and prologue, but for what's going on right now. Okay, speaking to Professor Alan Lickman, he's an American political historian. Professor Lickman, you you famously predicted that <laughs> would Trump would win the. I knew you were gonna. You knew I was gonna ask you the question. That of you fa- course, you famously predicted that Trump would win the last election when just about everybody was was saying that he would lose, and uh, you've become quite famous for that. What is your prognostication now uh, with an election looming in the fall? Is Trump going to get reelected? The million-dollar question, and you know I'm not going to answer that right yet. Uh, I have said repeatedly, and I'll tell it to you, it's no different what I've said to anyone else. I have not yet made a final prediction. Things are so tragically you know, in flux. I'm waiting to see how all of this plays out. But I can certainly tell you the outlook for Trump at the moment is much worse than it was, say, three months ago. Okay, well, certainly his polling numbers have, have dipped a little bit, and I, I wonder what's going to be the impact of this thing politically. I mean, Trump is hoping that, obviously, he wants this sort of big bang economic recovery if we can get beyond uh, this pandemic before the election in the fall. I'm not sure how realistic that hope is, but do you think that Trump's handling 
of of this uh, crisis is uh, potentially uh, fatal to his uh, re-election chances, possibly? Well, as I said, I've not made a final prediction, and you're right. I do think it's unlikely things are going to come roaring back. Not impossible. Uh, and that's why I'm waiting to see. But let me say this. No president has ever been re-elected in the midst of uh, an economic recession. It's never yeah. happened. Right. I Like, I remember your analysis be- before the last election, and you correctly predicted that Trump Trump would win that election, and it was largely based on economic analysis. With the country sliding into this pro- potentially the worst recession we've seen in decades, I mean, that can't help an incumbent. No, as I said, I haven't made a final prediction, yeah. but things are certainly looking worse for Trump than they were uh, three or four months ago. You know, if the Democrats had a charismatic challenger, you know, a John F. Kennedy, a Barack Obama from 2008, a Franklin Roosevelt. It would be over, done, finished. But uh, Joe Biden doesn't fit that bill. Okay, do you think Biden, what do you think of Biden so far? Is my last question to you. What do you think of Biden's uh, handling of this situation? I- I've heard some criticism of Biden that he's been taking too low a profile. This would just seem to be a golden opportunity for Biden to be taking a position of uh, laying out a recovery plan for the United States and, and criticizing Trump. What do you think is uh, Biden's performance so far? It's, it's been pretty lackluster. It's typical Biden, you know, low-key, not very exciting. He did lay out a plan, but no one seemed to notice. I'm not sure he should be doing more to criticize Trump. You know, there's an old saying, never interrupt your opponent when he's making a mistake. And Trump certainly isn't helping himself with these uh, self-serving uh, daily press conferences, although he does command the media. You know, it's not one of my keys. And normally it makes no difference whatsoever. But I think the critical thing for Biden is his choice of a vice presidential nominee. Never said that before, ever, Mm. you know, in in following politics for over 50 years. But Biden's 70, was he 78? You know, he's never been very dynamic. Uh, His health is an issue. He needs a dynamic, charismatic woman. Yeah. as his vice presidential nominee to inject some energy and enthusiasm into a lackluster campaign. I'm not making a pick. I'm just saying that's what he needs to do. Thanks for coming on. I look forward to having you on again. Anytime, Mike. Take care. Uh-